Welcome to it. I'm Michael Apple. It's Wednesday, the 16th of February. It's a packed and exciting show for you tonight. I want to jump straight into your news headlines. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. In today's headlines, Cape Town will be the first load-shedding-free city in South Africa, says Mayor Jordan Hill-Lewis. Speaking at the Solar Power Africa conference on Wednesday, Hill-Lewis said the city has now opened its first round of procurement of power from independent power producers. Cape Town is now issuing tenders to procure 300 megawatts of additional renewable energy, he said. We will be considering proposals from IPPs for projects that will allow us to access an affordable and reliable electricity supply. We are particularly eager for proposals from IPPs that are able to help us eliminate our reliance on ESCOM. The National Treasury will introduce new pension fund regulations for South Africa before the end of February, says Deputy Finance Minister David Masondo. The changes are aimed at unlocking new investment in infrastructure by the private sector and form part of the process to amend Regulation 28 of the Pensions Fund Act. And now it's on to my colleague Justin Roe Roberts for the Market Report. The JSE All Share Index was up at 76400 In the price action, miners in the green, Tiger Brands and Transaction Capital in the red. Jeltec Crypto Basket is up 2% on the day. If we look at the currency markets, the Rand was slightly weaker against all the major currencies to 15 Rand 14 cents to the dollar, 20 Rand 51 cents to the pound, and 17 Rand 22 cents to the euro. Gold is lower at $1,852 an ounce. The Kruger Rand will cost you around 29,500 Rand. Brent crude is trading at $94.50 a barrel. The premier cryptocurrency will put you back 670,000 Rand. In the financial news, in a surprise turn of events, Oceana Group, which owns household name Lucky Star Canfish, has announced that CEO Imran Sumra will step down at the end of February after he tendered his voluntary resignation amid a string of accounting troubles plaguing the fishing giant. Sean Pesh, Randmore Fund Management Founder. Sean, by now everyone knows what keeps you up at night. It's not the kids nor the wife moaning. It's Bob Van Dyke and the rest of the management team at NASM Process. If they had to run a university course, it would be on value destruction. There's no emotional attachment here. You don't own either company, nor do they feature in your benchmark. Processes waiting is negligible. But before we bite our teeth into each of the separate corporate actions, do you want to provide some background on the issue? Yeah, look, I mean, Justin, that's... uh... Let's just talk about why, you know, why, why am I even writing this thing? And the first point is, I really don't like injustice. And what I see is gross injustice um, towards the South African savings market by the Nusperson process um, companies. And I don't hear the large shareholders and fund managers publicly raising their voice. And that may well be because they're too scared of ruining their relationship with management. I understand that. But I have no relationship with NASPERS or process management. I've never spoken to the top guys, and I really don't care about that. And I'm going to say what I think is right. And if large shareholders disagree, they can come online, they can get on LinkedIn, they can tell me why I've got it wrong, say it publicly, and that's not going to be a problem. I won't disagree with them, and I'll hear them. But at the end of the day, 
protests listed in September 2019 and $100 invested then would be worth $143 if you put it in the world index, $148 in Tencent, $220 in Microsoft, $223 in Google, but instead that $100 is worth only $100 in NASPERS and $100 in process. So they've added no value since September 19. And even my fund, which is, which is a value fund and hasn't participated in this tech rally, okay, is worth 143 And if my fund was worth $100 now and the world index was 143 I can tell you I would have no investors because they would have fired me. And NASPERS has no excuse because Tencent's worth 148 So these aren't my views. I'm just expressing and highlighting what the market is saying loudly about the state of affairs. Sean, you've been around long enough to have seen this movie before with other management teams. How long does it take for shareholders to be fed up to the extent that they overthrow management? Well, the problem they have here is that there's this control structure. And if I was in South Africa and I had a major shareholding um, you know, in, in NASPERS and management were not bending, I would do absolutely everything I could to wreck this control structure. Because... You know, look, that control structure has served South African investors well because maybe you would have had a hostile takeover come in beforehand and you know, sell the 10 cent shares and wouldn't have participated to the extent that they had done. But it has served its purpose and it's time for a new thing. And, uh, and I would, if that was, you know, legally, I would be, I don't know, challenging it at the constitutional court. How can this company hold the, company, the, hold the country to ransom? And so, you know, historically, I guess you haven't had these control structures. And so if you don't like management, more than 50%, you kick out the board. That's what you do. That's what you do in normal, in normal corporate. You don't like the shareholder. You don't like the board. They're not responding. More than 50%, they're gone. You can't do that here. This company, this board controls it with something like 0.2%. Let's start with the corporate actions and we'll start with the buybacks. Corporate actions are used by investment holding companies to unlock value, not value destruct which is what we've seen with uh, Bob Van Dyke and his team. The buyback story is twofold. Firstly, on price, they've lost a quarter of their money with both NASPERS and Process. And then secondly, it raises question marks about the buybacks artificially keeping the share price higher um, as a result of them being a high part of trading volume for those days. Could you elaborate on both of those points? Sure, Justin. You know, if I was buying back, if I was a CEO and I was buying back, I mean, even a fund manager, you know, you don't show your hand. You, you might have a buyback program. You sell buyback as and when. You don't publicly, unless you have to, disclose every week, this is how many shares we bought last week. I think it's one of the problems you're seeing with the likes of ARK Invest. Investors are playing against them because they're seeing what ARK is buying and they're buying them the next day. And now what's happening is they're seeing what ARK is selling and they're shorting ahead of it. And so it, it undermines it. But, but if, if everybody knows you are buying back stock aggressively, well, they might try and front run you. And so you sit there and you just nibble as and when. And, and I found it really quite interesting because process, if you look at the buyback uh, that they enacted, they were a very high percentage of daily trade. And, and, and if you look at all the algorithms that are out there, if you are more than, you know, you speak to electronic traders, if you are more than 5% of the daily trade, those algos will sniff you out. And so I would just think that it's, um, you know, it's doing a disservice. You want to be very passive, especially right now when tech stocks are under pressure. You pick your days and you buy back softly and very passively. And that's when you get a good price for shareholders. And I'd suggest that they haven't. And yes, I know that if you look at, you know, they, they could have saved I don't know, $30 billion, 30 billion rand if they bought back the NASPERS and the process shares today. 
We didn't know that. And I know tech stocks have been weak, but remember the Chinese stocks were, you know, um, were weak before uh, this period. So it's just, it's just not been sensible, if I have to be perfectly honest. And it's no good buying back value that you think is there at the center if the value at the center is being destroyed at the same time. Delivery hero, another hype industry, huge euphoria, valuations got to unexplainable levels, which has been decimated in a large degree in the last six months. Can you do the numbers for process investment in Delivery Hero in the last year or so? Yeah, I mean, this and this really is what brought this company to my attention because, we, as I said, we don't own shares in NASPES, we don't own shares of Process. But and every day in our morning meeting, we just have a quick look and well, what were the worst performers and what were the best performers the previous day, and um, and you know, Delivery Hero was the worst performer in the world index on the one day, and the next day it was in the bottom ten. So I thought to myself, well, hang on a second, didn't uh, you know, didn't didn't ran, uh, didn't um, NASPES buy some shares? In delivery hero and i had a look on bloomberg and i saw that they bought 27 million last year with the last transport in october and that cost them three billion euros and in fact they were so keen on this company that they applied to the regulator to increase their holding above 25 percent okay and that's and then they bought their large tranche in october now the other day delivery hero issued a trading update and we're talking to the period in december bearing in mind that they bought in october period in december and the market was so disillusioned that the stock dropped 40% in two days. And they're now down 60% on their investment last year with a 31 billion dollar, 31 billion Rand loss. I thought to myself, this is just this is value destruction on a monumental scale. And, and they're supposed to really understand this business because they, you know, you'll recall they tried to buy Just Eat in, in 2019 for I think it was about five billion pounds. Um, and let's just remember, you know, in 2020, when we were all sitting at home ordering takeaways because you couldn't go to restaurants, Delivery Hero lost 1.4 billion euros. So, and now you've got more competition, there's more apps, and you can go out. So, you know, I've just been at, uh, it's just puzzled me what the, what the interest is in this food delivery. And, you know, I just cannot think that people delivering burgers and bikes is somehow technology. Um, and so it's a, it wasn't a surprise to me, and I find it staggering that it was a surprise to uh, to Process, and I didn't have a three billion euro bet on this thing. I couldn't believe the numbers attached to Build Desk's valuation in your thread. Naspers and Process they value the non ten cent portfolio at fifty billion dollars, but if Build Desk is worth ten percent of that, five billion dollars out of the fifty billion, you seriously got to start asking yourself how much is this non ten cent portfolio really worth? Well, I think that's a very valid point, and I find it staggering. I mean, four point seven billion. You know, Bill Desk made thirty-seven million dollars, and that's the, you know those are unaudited accounts. So that's hundred and thirty times earnings. So what I what I think the problem is, you know, and and just to put it into perspective, that nearly five billion dollars is a is a third of the fourteen point six billion that they raised from selling ten cent last year. Okay, so it does not add value if you sell ten cent. And you go and use those proceeds to buy something at 130 times earnings on unaudited accounts. You know, if I'd known that, I would have said, listen, just keep your money in 10 cent and we'll take our chances on the Chinese government and the VIE structures. You know, you just cannot see. This is not a new market. Yeah, I've, we've got an, an analyst here in who lives in India. They are way ahead of everybody else in terms of online payments and via apps and all the rest. And in fact, the government's involved. So I think the chances for profitability are far lower. And, uh, you know, and so, so when I put all that together, Justin, I say to myself, 
Management are no longer passively not unlocking value. They're actively destroying value. Sean Swiggy, an Indian fintech business in the stable, was valued at $10.7 billion in a new round of funding earlier this year, adding more than $5 billion in valuation in less than six months. This well-listed like-for-like peer Zomato was down by more than 40% in the corresponding period. You just really can't make this up. You know, you can't. And go and have a look on the Process website because they disclose their NAV calculation. And I find it staggering that for a technology company, they can't have it live and that it's back at 30th September. So I then ran the numbers and I said, okay, well, are they listed investments? How well have they done? Well, let's just run through the list. Remitly is down 65% since September. VK, which used to be the mail.ru, is down 61. Delivery Hero is down 58. Skillsoft, 47. Cinch, down 43. Trip.com, you know, came in second at only minus 2%. Thank goodness for Tencent. So yet again, Tencent is carrying this group. And, and if that is any indication of what the unlisted are doing, you know, you can take those, you, you get not a pinch of salt, a handful of salt. Um, I mean, one stock out of seven since September, who is making these calls on billions of dollars of South African savings? Because from what I can see, the track record is appalling. And, and this brings me to my point, because if you look at that NAV, Justin, it's, it's showing 133 euros a share. Okay, what's the share price? 68. So people don't, people don't believe the NAV, and most of the NAV is a listed price. Now that 50% lower, so the share price is basically half NAV. That 50% is $110 billion. And according to Bloomberg, NASPERS owns 57% in process. And per the, per the NASPERS annual report, 45% of NASPERS is domestically held. So here's the punchline. You know, South African shareholders are suffering a $28 billion discount, which is 422 billion rand. And this 422 billion rand is not showing up in people's pensions, retirement annuities, unit trusts. And, you know, and why? Well, because the market has lost faith with this management team, complete faith. Yeah, and it's and you bang when you look at the value destruction, you have to agree. Sean, as you point out, people have given up on this discount narrowing. In the last 24 months, all the reason that this discount exists have come to light, whether it be the VIE structure, horrible capital allocation, or just simply unrealistic asset values. The 40% discount exists for a reason. So what are you actually betting on here as an investor? Ten cent. Um probably. And you have to ask yourself, well, what is the NASPERS board going to do about it? And, and I had a look and, you know, they're 18, because at the end of the day, the responsibility of, you know, NAS board of directors do not sit around to drink tea and shoot the breeze. They are there. They are the representatives of shareholders. And there are 18 directors on the NASPERS board of directors, and that cost $5 million in 2020 to run. Now, just out of interest, Microsoft has 12 directors, not 18. And it cost $3.9 million. And Google is 11 directors, and it cost $4.4 million. So, so how can these trillion-dollar operating businesses, which are not holding companies, cost less and have fewer directors? You know, I mean, I find it just, just doesn't, doesn't add up. Sean, you started another thread showing what NASPERS could do with the money in South Africa. I don't want to assume anyone's read it that's listening. So before I ask you any questions on it, could you just give – a high-level summary of what that outlined. 
Well, that really came about because I read my, my I did two posts. And the first one, you know, I read to my wife and, uh, and she said to me, well, what, what is the positive message out of that? Because I was, I guess I was having a bit of a rant. And, and so I tossed and turned and you're right, it did keep me up at night. And I thought, well, what would I do with my money? And this is, I'm not on the board. This is not my thing. But I, but I would just say, let's learn. Why don't we learn? Why don't they learn from Tencent? What has Tencent done? It is basically a venture capital business in China. And they have taken their money and they've invested in these startups. And when these startups have done well, and they've supported them, and they've helped them advertise, and they've helped them on the legal side, etc. And when they've, when they've flourished and blossomed, they have then listed them and created more value. And it's been amazingly successful. So why doesn't NASPERS do that in South Africa? And why doesn't NASPERS, you know, we've got such big challenges in South Africa. There's, there's the energy crisis, but yet we've got wind, we've got sun. We've got, you know, brains. I mean, you know, it's where Elon Musk and Mark Shuttleworth come from. So there is the talent and there is the drive and there is the entrepreneurship. And so why doesn't NASPERS, if I were running the show, I would sell 2% of Tencent every year. Okay, slowly, consistently. I've looked at the numbers. You can do it. You don't have to flood the market and do big discounts. And I would take that money and I would invest it in, uh, in South African, you know, I'd create want a better word, Silicon Cities, in various places, each tackling these things. And I think, and investing in these startups, and then the, the technology can be developed, they, the, the lawyers can patent it globally, which is quite a challenge for small businesses, and, and build it from there, and do a 10 cent in Africa. Because at the moment, they're trying to find other needles in other haystacks in Asia, and everybody's looking there, and they're not going to find them. And, and actually, all the needles that they think they've found, we've just run the numbers now, They've been a disaster. They haven't actually been needles. They've been, if anything, they've been poisoned needles. So yeah, that's what I would do. Um, you know, but uh, but I tell you what, I just can't see how this management team uh, are, are going to do it. And and what worries me is you look at how much the company has paid the two execs to put South African shareholders in a four hundred and twenty-two billion rand hole. It's one and a half billion rand in the last five years. Go and look at the last five-year accounts. Add up the contribute the remuneration. One and a half billion. And you say, well, how on earth did they come up with this number? Well, the head of the remuneration committee is a private equity CEO from America. And you go, well, I mean, is that the right person? And they compare, they do a benchmark to Amazon and Alphabet and Facebook. But again, those companies are operating companies. Protus is a holding company. And, and, and by their own admission, 75% of the value is in Tencent. And they have committed, the directors have committed to do nothing for three years. So how on earth do you justify paying more and paying obscene amounts of money um, to, to the executives who are destroying value. It's got to stop. Kubis Vester, Chief Executive of Arcelor Mittal. When did you actually join the company, Kubis? Uh, the start of 2018. But prior to that, I was, uh, I was at Mittal for almost 20 years and then uh, sort of took a different avenue for a few years. Mittal outside of South Africa or in, in South Africa? No, I worked for the old ESCO and I worked for Mittal internationally for two years. So you've seen a lot of bumps and bruises along the way. Correct. We know that the financial results that you've just released for 2021 were spectacular by any means. It's best profits ever. But these come on some pretty rough times. How much money did you guys lose in the run-up to this really good year? I think after 2010, uh, the group lost about over 20 billion in, in losses, of which 12 billion were cash losses. So the financial drain and strain was, was very severe. 
Was there any chance during that time that Mittal, which is a global company, would have pulled out of South Africa or indeed pulled out of the company? Uh, <coughs> Mittal, the holding company, supported the uh, local unit for many years. Uh, to an, I mean, at some point they had more than eight billion in, uh, in funding uh, to the organization. And as a one shareholder, they supported the company uh, to the benefit of all shareholders. So we've seen the share price rocket. The perception is you guys have been squeezing the business in South Africa and you've squeezed every little bit of cash out of it in, the, in this year. Your, your total balance sheet a value of your land and properties and buildings. In other words, the factories is 8 billion rand, and yet in the last year you made 8 billion rand. So that's good news on that side. But from what you've just said to us, you're only clawing back losses from the past. I think that's a bit of a, a, a misperception in the market that uh, the local unit has been used as a cash cow, where actually Mittal has funded the local unit for, for many, many years. You know, up to uh, two years ago, we had... Many raw materials bills outstanding from them, which we did not pay, and could not pay. Um, so uh, yes, it's a it's, it's a wrong perception. Last year was a, a good year for us. Um, I don't think it's abnormal uh, conditions. We will not necessarily see that continuing, but the company is totally different company today than four or five years ago. You also want to reposition the company as a champion in South Africa. You are South African, it's pretty obvious, and you've worked with the group for many years. What went wrong in South Africa that a, a massive company like Isco was allowed to become less and less relevant? And, and I mean this because taking out your, from your most recent results, it was interesting to see that you produce 3 million tons of steel in this country. The total production is about 5 million from South Africa. Egypt has got 10 million and you talk about the big, com big countries in the world, they're in the over 100 million tons. So we've really become not the powerhouse that it used to be. No, 100%. I mean, and it all starts with economic growth and consumption. I mean, consumption in South Africa has deteriorated and decreased well, co consistently over many years. Whereas the competitiveness, the cost base of South Africa has also changed. I mean, we used to be a low-cost producer with benefits from iron ore, benefits from electricity, and all of those things. So with a diminishing domestic market and those disadvantages, it becomes difficult to sustain and survive. If you could wave a magic wand and go back to the old ISCO, uh, which divided into two with what is now Kumba Iron Ore and ArcelorMittal, would you have kept them together, given that iron ore is by far your biggest uh, raw material input? Of course, I think if you have your integrated raw material supply, it's always beneficial. But I think if you look at our results, I mean, we have diversified our raw material supply base with smaller domestic suppliers uh, substantially. That uh, our raw material increased last year by 10%, where internationally it increased by 42%. So yes, it would have been nice, but also I think we've, we've, we've took a different approach a few years ago. And s instead of complaining about the issue, we have assisted and developed younger or smaller companies and are now almost, uh, well, we're 100% source from more cost link than uh, export parity pricing. It's funny when you go back to COVID-19, and of course it was horrible uh, for 
big swaths of the South African economy and for big companies. But it also got people to refocus. And I, I get the feeling reading your annual report last year and reading your results that were released last week that this has also been the case with you. You've, because of COVID, it almost gave you a shock, a wake-up call to, to do things differently. Alec, I think a wake-up call came earlier. I mean, we did out in 2018, we look at uh, our way forward and we say if we don't substantially change the organization, we will not be there in 19 and 20. Uh, so our sort of uh, restructuring path started in the latter part of 18. And, and we did difficult things. Uh, as I said, on the raw material side, we've changed the, 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 the way the company procure and operate. On the people side, the cost side, we've did a, a lot of things that was difficult but necessary. And I think where we are today, if I look at our competitiveness versus international uh, companies, we are there or thereabouts. We have uh, certain inherent problems. I mean, uh, rail electricity in South Africa is expensive. Uh, those things that you, you can't uh, compete. Our productivity is not where it should be. Uh, and our people are expensive. And those are issues that we still have to work on. How do you improve productivity at an organization like yours? Well, automation is one thing. You can, you can uh, I think, as your, your cost of, of salary becomes uh, too much, it becomes cheaper to automate. Um, you have to digitalize. You have to work with less people. And those type of things, I think there's, um, there's still opportunities. But, I mean, we have reduced our, our labor headcount substantially. So we're at the point where we can now tweak constantly instead of having to do radical things. But the fact that you produce 3 million tons of steel a year and you've got international competitors that produce many, many, many times that, does that not put you at an almost permanent disadvantage just from scale? From a scale perspective, yes, but I think you also have a domestic uh, supplier always have an, an added benefit or a benefit from location. I mean, we are close to our customers, we're close to the market. We also, uh, our 3 million tons is, you get uh, plants overseas that produce 3 million tons of only one product. We produce 200 products, which also make it a bit more uh, expensive but also closeness to the customer. And I think one of our strategic pillars is also to be, be more connected to the customer going forward and see how we can jointly, I want to say, mine the value chain. I, I was looking at that as well and this new customer focus of yours. Uh, these, are, these are often, many companies come out with these really nice words, but actually implementing it, actually taking a, uh, like an oil tanker, and focusing it on the customer for a company like Isco, which has been the prime provider of steel in South Africa for generations. How do you get that through the organisation? Well, I think. Sorry, and I mean ArcelorMittal now, Isco in the past. Yeah. No, 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 that's fine. No, no, I think uh, I think we we acknowledge that from a customer servicing perspective, we've we've made mistakes. But on, on average, on general, our customers, we have a good relationship uh, with customers. I mean, I meet my customers very often. Uh, but how do, we, how do we improve that service offering uh, to any by training people, by getting in new people, by innovating? Uh, and I'm comfortable that, that we have the skills base. We just have to, as you rightly say, get out of that uh, big tanker mindset and be more nimble. Are you winning on that? 
Oh yes, I think so. I uh, think so. Give us an example of how. I think uh, an, an example of how is technology. We apply uh, new systems where customers' complaints can be resolved a lot quicker instead of six months, six weeks, and stuff like that. So you take a bit of frustration out of their lives. And and we have many other initiatives to keep on improving on that. We do customer surveys, understand what's the problems, and work at it. When you took over as CEO, did you have any idea that it was going to be as tough as it has been. I mean, clearly COVID was, uh, was, was an unknown at that point, but that you would have had to go through such a difficult time and, of course, now have had this spectacular year of turnaround. No, I must say it is harder than I thought, and I, the company also was a bit more static than I thought. I mean, I left it almost 10 years ago, and when I came back, it was almost the same. So... Uh, uh, getting the people to to move to act was almost the most difficult uh, thing to do, and as, and especially you can understand if you have a, a thirteen thousand people uh, who made losses for many years. Um, so change that psyche, uh, and we're now at the point where people actually realize, but this is possible. How do you incentivize them? Do you do you distribute? This fantastic profit that you had this year—do people see it in their paychecks? Uh, well, we have a we have a, a decent bonus scheme. In actually, in fact, uh, in 2020 with the COVID, we have a reasonable performance, but we didn't make any of our targets, and we still gave a, a handsome bonus to the people, just for being there, support and stuff like that. And we will do the same uh, in in the first quarter of this year. So I guess the real story for investors now is your share price has, has rocketed. Uh, you've been the best performing share on the JSC, certainly in the last year and maybe the last two years. You're stable, you, you're back into profit, you're not going to fall off the perch. But have you now reached the end of the road? Have you got to a point where ArcelorMittal South Africa has, has now kind of got a steady state perspective and, and you could look at the performance of the past year and say that's possible into the future? I think we have to prove sustainability still. Um, so I thought we have a lot of work to do. We had a, a, a very aggressive restructuring plan that we implemented up to now. We've now replaced it with a next five-year value plan and trying to create more value. Uh, and we have to deliver on that. In our type of business, if you're not cost-conscious and cost-competitive, you don't have a, a, a right uh, to exist. So we have still a, a fairly aggressive plan, um, which the, the total team bought into, and we're going to roll that out uh, in the next five years. And next five years, also very interesting things coming up. The whole decarbonization journey is an, a scary but very exciting uh, opportunity for a, a lot of people. How so? I mean, you will almost revitalize an old industry into new assets um, where we were not the sexy industry. You will attract uh, engineers and, and stuff. People will be able to, to learn. Um, no, I'm, I'm very excited about that. Do you get much support from ArcelorMittal globally? I mean, <coughs> I think the, their support over the past 
10, 15 years of loss-making years were, were quite evident. Um, they they su- support the company almost to the tune of 8 billion rand directly. But from a, a, a support perspective, technical support, uh, yes, we get a lot of support. Uh, uh, effortless support and personal support from the leadership and the owner, yes, pretty much. Do you see him much, uh, Mr. Mittal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we obviously we don't travel anymore, but uh, we speak often. And uh, so he takes an interest in what's going on no, in no, South no, Africa. No. Of course, he takes an interest. <laughs> How important he's a, are he's you? A, he's a, he's a, <laughs> we're not that important, uh-huh. but he's a passionate steelmaker, uh, and he's got a relationship with uh, South Africa. And if you have a look at the whole steel market, uh, China producing about half of the steel uh, in the world. What's the story there? Because I guess if they switch on, uh, then the steel prices are going to get uh, under a lot of pressure. But if they decide to cut back on their steel production, and as state-owned, they can do that, uh, then steel prices around the world would be a lot firmer. Well, they have cut back. They've cut back, uh, well, they've reduced their uh, export incentives. That's one thing. And then they've cut back in production. Just explain that, export incentives from China. Were they subsidizing exports? Correct. You, you, they had a, a, a VAT rebate that supported exports. I think it's about 13%. Isn't that contrary to the World Trade Organization? I don't, I'm not sure on the specifics, but they've been uh, practicing that for many years. That has, mm. that has, uh, they've stopped that last year. And then they've got the energy shortages and they've got the emission problem which further forced them to curtail uh, production. Now, that makes a big impact. I mean, they, they are the exporter of the world. So it will change the dynamics uh, a lot. And I think going forward, for countries to produce carbon steel, uh, admit CO2, take that and export it at substandard pricing will not uh, be encouraged. Um, so I think uh, I think the outlook for the steel industry is a lot more positive the next 10 years than the past 10 years. It's so interesting when you have a look at it from a broader perspective because some economists will say, close ArcelorMittal, let's just import from other parts of the world where you've got scale. It, it's got to be cheaper. But from what I'm hearing from you now is that there is a, there's a reason to have a local or a domestic steel industry? Well, I think, you, you know, you can outsource crude steel production for a period of time, but then you will start outsource the manufacturing of many other things. Uh, Russia or China will only put steel here for a period of time, then they will put the wheelbarrow here. So you will deindustrialize uh, in, in total. Uh, but but I haven't think we done that already? Haven't we deindustrialized? I, I mean, what, what, was, what was Arsenal Metal's peak output? Uh, uh, no, no, uh, yeah, what was no, your no, peak performance? No, I think we were about s- over 7 million tons. And you're down to 3? We're down to 3, yeah. Sure. yeah. No, but I think you can reverse that. I also think from you're talking from a, a, a scale perspective, I mean, I know the Chinese cost curves. Uh, we're there or thereabouts. It's not that China is substantially cheaper in production than we are. Yes, the fixed cost is cheaper. That I can. The energy cost is cheaper. And if you look only at those two elements, it's about 15% cheaper than ours on a total cost basis. So we have to find ways to, to address that and, and resolve that. 
But uh, but they still got to get the steel here. They still got to, get and that will cost how much of the of the percentage? If you say it's fifteen percent cheaper to produce in China, it it will be another ten percent, I would assume. Right. So it's it comes very much. Correct. Over but much if I look at, I mean, we are in the range of the the China. I mean, I've looked uh, recently at I think thirty six of the of the cost curve. It get published. There's an international uh, website on that and. Uh, we're not uncompetitive. Now, your customers in South Africa, are you one of the companies that they love to hate? Over many years, there have been people, first of all, going to the Competition Commission and other people complaining, as they have done on Biz News uh, in our columns, saying, you guys went to the government, you got duty protection. Uh, reading in your annual report, that expired, but you need to explain that to me as well. But you're still charging much more than you should be charging. What's your counter-argument to that? I mean, our price is derived from an international price. So firstly, our, our price is actually regulated. So there's an international formula, dollars, converted to, uh, to uh, by the exchange rate, and that's the cap. And then you also have an import uh, parity. I mean, so I've got two caps to my price. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, international prices increased last year substantially more than prices domestically. So uh, that's not, I mean, you always have... Uh, and when you talk about duties, it's not for AMSA. The duties are there for the industry. I mean, last year, I think there was, uh, most probably for f- on the local sales side, we sold just over 2 million tons. Our competitors sold 1.1 million ton. 1.3 was imported. They also get uh, a protection. Um, so it's not that uh, uh, it's a freebie. And... The, the the rules around duties is WTO standards, and it's not only South Africa. Steel's been dutied all over the world. Even China's got duties on South Africa. Russia's got duty on South Africa steel. Turkey's got duties on India. So those four exporting countries all have duties on us exporting steel to them. So it's a bit of an education process that people uh, and, and need to need to do. And duties is not a steel thing. I mean, if you import a car, there's duties. If you import cigarettes, whatever, um, duties got charged on on many products. um, And there's good reason for. What are those reasons? Uh, To create fairness. As I said to you earlier, you you cannot have uh, countries where energy is subsidized or labor is subsidized or Chinese don't factor in what's finance cost. uh, And all that, that benefits and they export the residual part and also incentivize it. That's so complex, isn't it? And it's so easy to be simplistic about these things. But I think that the real question for South Africans generally is that we've seen this industrial base of ours being hollowed out. And here you've got a company that's now back in profit and is saying, we want to be the champion of the manufacturing sector for South Africa. How do you do that in an environment where it doesn't appear as though there's a heck of a lot that's supporting you. Just look at electricity prices as a as a starting point. No, I, I do think, but just coming back to one point, when you talk to our customers, I mean, our customers are generally satisfied with our service and our quality. Our quality is, I mean, you always have one or two uh, potential complaints, but I don't know, maybe they're competitors, not customers. So uh, we've got over 1.3 million tons of imports 
into the country. So how do we work with our customers to displace that firstly? Um, we've got capacity potential. I mean, we can restart a Sultana. We can increase our current production base, most probably by almost a million tons. So there's capacity that can be made available. Um, how do we work with customers to displace that? Once you start displacing that, then you start industrializing on a small scale. But ultimately, um, I think there's a, a lot of opportunity. But we need baseline economic growth uh, to ignite these things. I, I think the tools are there, the people are there, the assets are there. Um, we just need the government to unleash that. But we've seen massive gearing in your company uh, in, in that your turnover last year went up about 15 billion and the bottom line turnaround was 9 billion. So yeah. it dropped straight, almost straight to the bottom line. If you were to see South Africa growing again, the economy growing, not at 3%, but perhaps 5 and 6 and, and, and more, is that what you're looking for? Is that where the real turnaround will become apparent? Correct. If you have growth of, the, say, 1.8%, there around about 1.5 to 1.8%, your steel consumption stays static. So once you get to 3%, it's actually a hockey stick. It gets accelerated substantially. So if we can get to the 3 to 5%, I mean, that will be many, very beneficial for the steel industry, not for us. Are you seeing any signs of that happening? I mean, I think, uh, um, you know, you have, to, you have to remain positive. I mean, the, the energy, renewable energy, that will already start um, with, a, I think, a, a fairly long-term constant supply of quality uh, demand. Um, I think there's some water dam projects that is imminent. So uh, I think once uh, once those things happen, I think the, I won't say privatization, but sort of the allowing uh, private sector involvement in ports and rail will also start to uh, have a positive impact. So the words are good. The SONA, uh, State of the Nation, was saying all of these things after many years, perhaps appreciating where the country has been going wrong and saying the good things. But but you're at the rock face. You you you. you feel whether demand is going up or not and are you seeing yet from industry that they're starting to believe the story this turnaround story for the country i i don't i don't necessarily think so i think people are very uh, skeptical but south africans are also very positive people i mean i can tell you the people in our industry look at opportunities um, to participate and to support growth um, so I think uh, I'm, I'm maybe naively so, but I am still positive because we don't have much other choices. Uh, <laughs> some of these things would would be uh, would start uh, materializing. Yeah, there's no there's no point in being negative if you're living in the country like correct, ours. Correct. But it, it, if you look outside of the borders of South Africa and you do service other parts of the African continent, what's the Feedback from there. Well, I think if you look at the at the steel demand potential in sub-Saharan Africa, it's, it's also massive. So there is a big uh, potential, to the extent that the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement make it easier to do that and start. I don't want to say protecting, but look at uh, two-way trade instead of trading with China or Russia or whatever. 
I think there's a lot of opportunities there, not necessarily for us directly, but for our customers who have that indirect growth. So those are all things that's on the card that's being discussed in, in, in various areas, but all government uh, sort of sponsored or stuff, and, and the government wheels are, are slow. But one would assume that uh, eventually these 50% of these cards can actually stack up. So if, if I look at it from a long-term perspective, we were to take a 10-year view on Oslo, Middle South Africa. You've, you've been through the worst. You, you're not going bankrupt. You've, you've now started moving back into profit. You've refocused, restructured the business, and you've got ideas and plans to, to make that even better. You have on your doorstep a free trade agreement with the rest of the continent, which has now been enacted. And you also have a government which is talking the right talk even though it might take a long time, as you've mentioned, for that to come through. So if you take that 10-year view, I guess you would see things being a lot more positive uh, in a decade's time than they are today. I think there's, there's two things. I, I, as I said, I think the international steel market would be more positive the next 10 years than the previous 10. And then in South Africa, uh, I do think that next 10 years can only be better. Um, and if you stack up all of those things, uh, I do think a much more positive outlook for for us as a company, but as an industry, but I think generally. So what is it going to take for OsloMittal to start reinvesting again? As I mentioned earlier, you've got 8 billion rand in assets, in, in plant and, and property and equipment, and you've already achieved 8 billion rand in profit. You've got Saldana, uh, a steel works waiting to be reopened. So I guess you don't really need to start building any more steel factories. But what's it going to take for you to, to really, for your global parent, to really pump money in, in fixed investment here? Well, I think we, we have to generate the, the, the cash that, that we want to invest. I think that's the important thing. I think we deleverage the balance sheet and will allow us to, to, to leverage again for the appropriate assets. I mean, our plans is for, for this year, you know, our cap, CapEx is going to be substantially more than doubled than last year. It was about, what was it last so it's year? It was about a billion right? rand. About a billion? So yeah. you're doubling it up? Yeah, more than doubling it up. In, in where? How would you spend that? <laughs> well, we spend, uh, we, we have some environmental projects that we are doing. We're doing some quality projects, and we're doing some general maintenance uh, and the restoration uh, so we are investing, uh, and then we've got some uh, expansion, not expansion, more on the quality side. So uh, we improve our quality and new stuff. And so uh, we are investing, but the next phase of investing is to invest in renewable energy uh, as part of the decarbonization journey. So and, and the cost of electricity, those investments become commercially very easy to justify. For yourselves, for in other words, correct, yes. instead of using electricity, you, you put in renewable plants of your own. Correct. We've, we've been out uh, on tender, we've received them, so we'd have to now just uh, do a, a rollout plan for ourselves. I mean, we can do up to uh, 100 megawatt per plant. So that, that is in action. We can what percentage of your electricity bill would that cover? I would assume around uh, 40%. It is significant then. Yes, but then we also have projects where we will convert gas, more gas to electricity, self-generation. So we've got uh, capacity for that. That's in the development stage. 
Uh, we want to increase our scrap consumption in our plants. It's also a reduction in CO2. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of investment opportunities. We are we're looking at a feasibility study at the Tabazimbi mine to see if we can restart that mine and then be self-sufficient uh, on iron ore. And you still own that, Tabazimbi? Yes, yes. It didn't go off to Kumba. Why? It actually did, but they mined it for us. Uh, at, at uh, Well, we paid for everything, and when the, the mine actually stopped, transferred it back to us for rehab purposes or what. That's but, an interesting but, but upside. Today, ne- technology has changed. What you, what you thought 10 years or 20 years ago is not feasible. It now can become feasible. So uh, it, it sounds like you go to bed at night not worrying as much as you certainly were a couple of years ago, but, but looking at a, perhaps a brighter future. No, I think a more exciting future. And, 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 and uh, yeah, I think uh, there's more opportunities. And one can start now. I mean, having a bit of profit and money, you can all reinvest in people. Uh, you can do the things that you could not do two years ago. Uh, you have to scale down training, you have to do all of those things. Uh, so at the point where we are actually employing people, uh, which is different, um, we're we upscaling uh, our training programs to more than our own requirements, which we've done years back. So those are, are, are the <coughs> nicer things to be able to do. It's nice to go to work when you're looking at the sunshine rather than having grey skies above Correct. you every day. Talking to the lawyers, Elder. <laughs> Is it, though, uh, the, are you at, at the latest set of results? Uh, is that kind of solid-state earnings? Is that, is that, can investors bank and say, well, at least in future, um, it's likely that production is going to go up, it's likely that prices are not going to fall, at least, that this is the kind of number that you can start writing into your forecast? No, I think I think prices already start coming off uh, second half, fourth quarter last year. We lag on the upside and we will lag a bit on the, on the downside. And I think, you know, last year was abnormal. And I don't think people should expect that party to continue. But <coughs> after 2008, steel prices collapsed. We haven't seen a collapse. We've seen a correction, a softening. And we actually now, to date, see prices uh, coming up a bit. So there's support from the cost base uh, for these type of, of, of prices. And, and spreads are still relative attractive. Um, so I think uh, people should do their own calculations. But, uh, I mean, you know, in the U.S., our troll coil prices was $2,300 per ton. Now, that can is not sustainable. Um, back to... 1,500, 1,400, which is most probably more realistic. And just to close off with, Quibus, what is your dream for ArcelorMittal? If you could, again, wave a magic wand, would it be to dominate steel production in Africa? Would it be at least to challenge the Egyptians, uh, who are producing twice as much? I was surprised to see that steel as South Africa does. No, I want us. To, I want. I want uh, ArcelorMittal South Africa to be a leading organization in the country, not necessarily by size or whatever, but in what we do, that we are above average, that we're good in how we treat our people, how we service our customers, and how we interact uh, with society. So it's a South Africa focus first. 100%. Before you start dreaming about 
the rest of the continent. 100%. Enough work to do here. Is that what you're <laughs> telling us? Yeah, we, we still have a lot of work to do internally, but a lot of work in, in the country. Today is Wednesday, February 16th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Stocks ended higher yesterday as tensions over Ukraine eased a bit, and a big name in artificial intelligence is funding research into the hard problems of AI. Plus, the saying in the oil patch used to be, drill, baby, drill. Ultimately, the reason that people start out in oil is to drill more holes in the ground, and that's what they like to do. But pressure from Wall Street is making some shale energy producers hold back. We'll talk to our U.S. energy editor, Derek Brower, about this driller's dilemma. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Markets enjoyed some relief yesterday as the prospect of Russia attacking Ukraine eased a bit. U.S. and European shares rallied after Russia said it had begun pulling back troops along the Ukrainian border to their bases. The S&P 500 index rose about 1.5%. Oil prices also fell back from their steady march upward. Brent crude fell 3.5%. But our U.S. capital markets correspondent Kate Duguid reminds us that this is already a time for extreme jitteriness in the markets. At this moment, we are reacting to the littlest bit of news from the Fed. Last week, when it seemed like an invasion was imminent, investors sold riskier assets like U.S. and U.K. stocks um, and then bought up safe haven assets like government debt. But on Tuesday, when that invasion did not seem so likely, those moves began to unwind. What's really interesting here, I think, is that in, in the U.S. is that the Ukraine-Russia news has been tempering some of the market's reaction to last week's uh, super hot inflation print. But then demand for those safe haven assets on the Russia news has reversed some of that move. So we've got these kind of competing forces uh, at play, especially in the U.S. Treasury market at the moment. Kate Duguid is the FT's U.S. capital markets correspondent. Now, yesterday, as stocks rose, oil prices dropped, but Brent crude and West Texas Intermediate have been steadily increasing towards 100 bucks a barrel. If they hit 100 bucks a barrel, it would be the first time since 2014. And that's got shale oil companies in the U.S. itching to fire up their drilling rigs. But many are holding back. That's largely because of past lessons learned and the fear of Wall Street's wrath. Here's our U.S. energy editor, Derek Brower. The industry that is, has re-emerged post-pandemic is trying to tell Wall Street, tell investors that it can actually make money in future. But it's doing that at the expense of not producing as much oil anymore. So what do investors think about scaling back, Derek? Well, the, the funny thing is, before the pandemic, U.S. oil producers, shale producers were producing more and more oil, but they weren't making very much money. Now they're producing less oil but they're making money hand over fist. Some of these companies, companies like Pioneer Natural Resources, Devon Energy, who I spoke to down in, in Oklahoma City last week, you know, they are making more money than they have ever in their history because they're not spending as much money on drilling. And that is actually starting to win back some investors from a low base. But some of these investors say, well, look, I mean, the dividends that these companies are paying out for the first time in their history, they're really, really, really big dividends. So it, there is this kind of battle being waged almost in the minds of the shale executive class. You know, these, these are men that often grew up thinking they needed to drill more and more wells. And, you know, they, to the glory of America, they needed to produce more and more oil. 
And now they've had to adjust their mindset to produce profits instead of more and more oil. And they're starting to like this because many of them are paying themselves some of these dividends. Sure. Makes sense. So what does this mean for the shale industry long term? And can shale energy producers maintain this kind of restraint on drilling? The the American shale industry thinks it has finally arrived at a place where it can grow production modestly and not overwhelm the oil market with too much supply. That was one of its problems in the past. At the same time as it actually starts to generate profits. The big problem is that as oil prices rise, some of what they are referring to as capital discipline, this new model, a lot of people fear that the companies will just get back to doing what they used to do, which is just producing more oil and forgetting about this uh, notion of capital discipline, of returning money to shareholders. Because ultimately, the reason that people uh, start out in oil, generally speaking, is to drill more holes in the ground. And that's what they like to do. So it's hard to believe that an industry can change its spots so quickly. The shale industry is swearing blind. These public executives are saying, I promise you, we are not going to waste all your capital on drilling too many too many wells again. Uh, but Wall Street's still pretty skeptical. Derek Brower is the FT's U.S. energy editor. So as you probably know, artificial intelligence is a huge part of our lives. But there's also growing awareness of the problems it's creating. Its algorithms have biases, and they fan political divisions. Now, a tech titan behind AI says he wants to fund research to help solve these problems. The FT's Matamita Mergia spoke to former Google chief executive Eric Schmidt about his new $125 million fund called AI 2050. It seems that they're also interested more in the future of what AI is going to look like in 2050. And um, for that, you know, the other questions they're concerned about, and that sort of comes back to Schmidt's experience, uh, you know, in the National Security Commission, you know, they're interested in also geopolitical questions around, you know, how do we, how, when different countries are competing over AI, how will that work? But as Madhu points out, this nonprofit, which is supposed to fund non-commercial research, is very much overseen by company executives. So this is actually something that Schmidt himself acknowledged. You know, he said the money comes from Google wealth. And so he thinks that this is kind of a recycling, you know, wealth that's created by Google that's then recycled. I mean, I think we should also note that the co-chair of this foundation or this grant rather um, is James Manyika. He's the new head of technology and society at Google. Um, he says that, you know, he's playing this advisory role in a personal capacity. But I think it just goes to show that, you know, so much of the talent and the money and the ideas in AI is so sort of concentrated in the hands of corporates like Google, like Facebook. Even large universities are struggling both for funding and for talent when they've got to compete with these companies. Maramita Mergia is the FT's European technology correspondent. Before we go, about 3,000 Airbus workers in the UK voted overwhelmingly to go on strike, possibly as early as next month. The key issue here is pay. Their union describes the salary offer by the aerospace company as unacceptably low. Workers want the company to put up an offer that reflects rising living costs. Airbus says its company in the UK has made the offer based on the context of the pandemic's impact on business. The threat of a strike comes as Airbus is trying to increase production to meet rising customer demand. 
You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Well, quite a show we've had for you this evening. We look forward to being back in your company again. Same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.